Thanks, Christine, very much. Just for a moment, turn to the person next to you, and uh, you've been asked to uh, share how the Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus, and particularly the cross and resurrection. What parts of the Old Testament are you going to begin to uh, think about as part of that? Or if uh, that's not your bag, no idea where to start on that one, imagine that something very important is coming, and you need to get people ready for it. What are the kind of things that you do? Go. The shadow of the cross. And Holman Hunt, the leader of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, went to Jerusalem and spent three years there in the 1870s before finally drawing uh, uh, this particular, or painting this particular painting in order to cut through what he thought were some of the uh, sentimental images of the day to express something that he understood was at the heart of the gospel story. Uh, And he paints this picture that you can see uh, of Jesus in the carpenter's shop before he began his ministry uh, and in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, just for a moment stretching uh, and it casts a shadow against the tool rack at the back of the carpenter's shop. And the shadow makes the form of a cross. Mary, it's not quite clear where she's looking, but she reaches out to that treasure chest in which was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it it captures something of how, for Jesus, the, the shadow of the cross must have cast its long darkness over possibly every uh, day, every moment. And, and maybe Mary too, as she'd begun to understand all that it would mean for a sword to pierce her own soul. It's, of course, in, in, in some ways, a, a theoretical picture. We've no idea whether the shop looked like that and was there a rack in that way and did it literally cast a shadow like that. But the, the painter is wanting to express something deep, that the shadow of the cross was not simply something that fell over Jesus' life. But the shadow of the cross is something that's always fallen over every day over every moment. In fact, the Bible teaches us that even before the world was created, even before there was any breath, even before anything was created out of the chaos, the shadow of the cross had already fallen. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, a letter that went round to to many churches in that area, he, he reminds those early Christians that what God did at the cross had always been in God's heart. That there was never a moment when the cross had not been conceived. Never a moment when the idea didn't exist. Never a day when the reality was not true for God. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His will and pleasure. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. Everything points towards the cross. The cross, not a moment, a point in history, but the cross of the moment, the point. 
to which all history would inevitably move towards and from which history would continue forever to unfold until that day when all things are made new. So it's not surprising then that on almost every page of the Old Testament, the ideas, the concepts, the understanding of the cross is there to be found. And I want just for some moments before we share communion under the shadow, uh, not quite, of the cross, uh, we're not it's hard to know exactly what the cross looked like, but those, those nails are about the right distance for uh, a fully grown adult, adult male. So I wouldn't fit on that cross, which is a little reassuring, but some of you would. Uh, so an adult male, the shadow of the cross falls on every Old Testament page. Go right back with me to Genesis. If you've got a Bible open, you might need to just, you might like to just flick through some of these uh, verses. Most of them I've captured on the screen for us, I think. If you go right back to that dreadful moment, we're just a couple of pages in. The, the, the moments after the glory of creation, so fleeting, and then they're gone with the fall and the catastrophic outworkings of uh, men and women rebelling against God and going their own way. And here in chapter 3, God is pronouncing his judgment, the inevitability of what life without him will mean and will lead to. And yet... Even right at the beginning, even when God in his righteousness is declaring his judgment on the whole of creation, we begin to get gospel truth. The proto-evangelium, this verse is called, or evangelium, the first evangelist, the first moment gospel truth is being proclaimed here in Genesis chapter 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. God's speaking to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you, the deceiver, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, he, that's Jesus, will crush your head, he's saying to the serpent, and you will only strike his heel. Satan the deceiver will be crushed. That's what it says there, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. And and, and so, years later, generations later, centuries later, as God keeps his promise, as God works his purpose out, one day, after the cross, Paul would look back and he would say, that's exactly what happened on the cross. Satan was defeated and crushed. For there on the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Before this uh, whole dreadful fallen story gets underway that we know as our history, gospel truth was being proclaimed. And then just at the end of of this whole section in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 3, there's a lovely tender moment. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and clothe them. Why? Because the Bible says in their sin, they suddenly realized they were naked and felt ashamed. A covering for shame was provided. Animal skin. It was the death of an animal that covered their shame. What was on God's mind at the end of Genesis chapter 3? That there would be a death, that blood would be spilt, and yet out of that death, that spilling of blood, our nakedness and our shame would be covered. We must race on to Abraham, the first big figure on the scene uh, of the Old Testament story, the Old Testament journey. And Abraham was called to leave his old way of life behind. And what we need to understand about Abraham's way of life that his, his forefathers had been engaged in was that it was a, a, a terrible, a terrible way to live, believing that they had to appease the gods, the gods that would be responsible for their fertility, gods that would be responsible for the flourishing of their crops, for the fruitfulness of their land. And so each year they would pray to their gods that the gods would have favor on them and give them children and give them crops and give them shelter, give them the rains that they need and the dry season that they needed. They lived as if their lives were in the lap of the gods. But it created a terrible tension because if they had a successful year, then they would be grateful to the gods for giving them that successful year. But in order to guarantee that the next year would also be successful, they felt compelled to do more and more to appease the gods in order that they would continue to offer them favor. So what they did to appease the God in the first year probably wouldn't be enough a second time round. They'd have to show their commitment by doing something more in order that the gods would continue to bless them and grant them favor. If they had a bad year, then they felt caught in that same cycle also. If they had a bad year, then they had to do even more the following year to make sure that instead of the, the disfavor, the gods would show them favor. And so they would find themselves in a culture where they're always doing increasing things to appease the gods. You'd offer them some of your fruit, your crops. And perhaps the next time you needed to offer them something a bit more that showed a, a greater level of commitment. So instead of your crops, you might offer them some of your animals. And imagine this cycle going on of needing to find greater things to offer. And so in that culture, in Abraham's culture, offering your child as a means of declaring how committed you were to the gods that they might show you favor had become commonplace. You see how in a culture of needing to offer more and more, you end up in that ridiculous place. Hello? And so God says to Abraham, I want you to come away, leave your Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. You begin there with every religious instruction syllabus has ever been. Leave your country and kindred. Leave that way of life and go to a new way that I will show you. And so Abraham does that. But then it gives context to that most well-known moment in Abraham's life 
when he's called upon to offer his son as a sacrifice. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, Then God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The most shuddering thing about that verse is that Abraham knows exactly what to do. And he begins to make his way to the mountain. It was not so far out of his culture that he takes his one and only son. And suddenly the story begins not to make any sense to us. I thought God was calling him away from that way of life. And then just at the moment, verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, do not do anything to him. Why? Because a lamb was provided. What's God doing? What's God trying to communicate as as he builds some massive truth into Abraham by making Abraham act it out in such a a vivid and powerful and frightening almost way? Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It will be provided. Shocking parallels, aren't there? A father who gives up his son. A son who's willing to be sacrificed. A God who himself provides the sacrifice. Remember where? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Where did Jesus die? On this mountain. On this place. What's God thinking about in Abraham's day? What's on God's heart? What's God trying to build into the understanding of his early followers? So we could go on with loads of, uh, of incidents that, that, that help us uh, see the cross in the heart of the Old Testament. Something a little different to that is some of the types in the Old Testament. Some of the ways in which the lives of those who followed God years ago became types, images, small replicas, adverts, signposts, windows, whatever language you choose to use, on what Jesus would come and do. Think with me about the story of Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, he was the youngest son. His brothers hated him. They uh, uh, put him in a pit as if he was going to be dead. They abandoned him. He was sold into slavery and eventually after a long, long time, he rose up to be the highest person in the land when there was a famine and many, many people around the world were saved because of him. But think just a little bit about what happened in that story. He was the beloved son. He was the beloved son. And he was sent to those that actually he would one day save. He was killed, in inverted commas, effectively, by those he would one day save, by those he was sent to. 
He was raised, in inverted commas, to a new life. Raised very quickly in the end, after a long, long wait. God works like that, doesn't he? Makes you wait till the end, then suddenly, Joseph gets raised up into Pharaoh's uh, household. And so, what's the consequence of that in the story? What's the type? What's the image? What's the signpost? What's the window that God is asking us to look at the way that he works? What, what's that window like? Through Joseph's death and resurrection, many lives are saved. And Joseph was the one who, when he could have acted in revenge. Joseph, the one when he had every right to judge his brothers, actually chooses the way of forgiveness. Uh, And there are a number of types like that in the Old Testament of peoples whose lives became a prophetic picture, a prophetic window on what God was ultimately doing in sending his son, Jesus. The biggest event of course, in the Old Testament, was the Exodus. When God released his people from slavery, when the sin of their oppression was judged, when the principalities and powers, it was a battle, can you remember, of the gods? You know, when all the the plagues were not random, it wasn't just frogs and flies and uh, like God was plucking things out of the air, but it was a specific challenge to different Egyptian gods. It was a battle not between human beings, but it was staged as a battle between the principalities, the gods of Egypt and the God of the people of Israel. Those under the sentence of death who were being chased by Pharaoh's men and his chariots were rescued or redeemed. Those that were oppressed in slavery get liberated uh, and they're, they're given a new land and so on and so forth. We know the story. But then, suddenly, in the, old, in the New Testament, with hardly any warning, Paul says something as if it's so familiar to everyone who's listening that they almost don't need to be introduced to the idea. So familiar with it that it can almost be said in passing. Paul says, remember, of course, that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so as the early church had begun to grapple and understand all that God had done in Jesus, they could look back and they could see in the Exodus that it was just another sign, another pointer to the way God always works and what he would one day ultimately do, that sin would be judged, that those who are facing death would be rescued, that the oppressed would be liberated, and so on and so forth. Hallelujah. It's not just people and situations that became signs, but other moments that God would use to highlight all that he would one day do. Remember this story in the desert? The people sin against God. It's a consequence of their sin. They get sick and ill. They have like boils and bites uh, uh, all all over them as a a result. And uh, they cry out to God. Uh, And God says, well, look, I'll provide something for you that if you look to it, then you can find healing. Uh, and God provided for them, uh, 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 through Moses made a snake, a bronze snake, that was put on a pole, 
And whenever you got bitten and were, were suffering and diseased and full of the poison of those snakes, you could look to the, uh, you could look to the snake and you would be healed. How cool is that? Uh, every church needs one of those. And, uh, uh, and, and so that was it. And so often with these signs, and so typical of Jewish culture, which is all nuanced. It's all about the nod and the wink. It's all about, you're looking at this, but do you really see what you're looking at? Look a little bit deeper, because what you think you're seeing is probably just the tip of the iceberg. And you need to push it and look a little bit more. Jewish writings are always like that. You push a little bit more, and you don't need to, in fact, because Jesus says, hey, if you haven't noticed it, if you haven't spotted it, what's about to happen to me as I get lifted up on the pole, what's about to happen to me is simply that which was prophesied through that serpent on a pole years ago. How remarkable then that Paul, uh, that Jesus rather, should uh, remind his followers that as they see him on the cross, It had been prefigured centuries before by a serpent on a pole. But isn't that strange? Isn't that strange that Jesus would uh, would depict himself as a serpent on a pole? The devil, the tempter, and yet Jesus so pure, so holy, so everything that the devil isn't. But isn't that the point? Isn't that what Paul would later say? That Jesus would become that. He who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So if you haven't got the idea, that the encouragement is to look a little deeper. Because what you think you're seeing, you probably are seeing, but the weird, the wink and the nod, the nudge from heaven says, look a little deeper and see the thread of the story that everything is moving inextricably towards that moment when Jesus died on the cross. One of my favorite Old Testament books, I've come to love uh, this book, is the book of Leviticus. And uh, not everybody loves Leviticus, that's true to say. And um, uh, uh, most of us know Leviticus is the book that fills us with shame, because we agreed that we'd read the Bible in a year, and then we got to Leviticus, and it killed us, because like, what's that all about? I've got no idea. It makes no sense. And then you look a little deeper. The Bible always invites us, scratch the surface and see a little bit more. You see, the book of Leviticus starts off with five chapters, five different offerings. There's the burnt offering, I remember talking about that, about them dragging the bull into the platform. That sounds a quite a fun one. The grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And at first glance, they seem entirely obscure. But then you begin to scratch away, a bit like, you know, with a coin and you scratch, a, or you scratch that thing for your pin, you know, and you scratch away. Uh, and then suddenly you can see underneath something that you hadn't seen before. Uh, and when the penny dropped that those five sacrifices all say something different about the death of Jesus, I was amazed that that was there. And nobody had told me about that before. 
And, and as you scratch away at the book of Leviticus with all its weirdness and all its sacrifices, and then the Day of Atonement is in there as well, uh, which is another story perhaps for another time. Let me just illustrate this with, with one of them. The one, I don't think we looked at this when we went through uh, the story. So we'll look at Leviticus chapter 2 and the grain offering. When someone brings a, gr- <coughs> a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be of fine flour. He's to pour oil on it put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial uh, portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Uh, And don't forget, at the end of the chapter, which reminds you you've got to read to the end of the instruction book before you start playing with anything, because at the end of the chapter it says, don't forget, verse 13, season all your grain offerings with salt. But you knew that, didn't you? You didn't need to be reminded about the salt. So you've got all these ingredients that make up the grain offering. Fine flour was very costly. Normal flour was not fine. It was used in everyday life. But fine flour needed to be grounded again and again and again and again. Incredibly labor-intensive. Here is something that they needed to use that was very pure Indeed, to get fine flour, they would have had worked it really hard to be very aware of its purity. Oil was so often used as the symbol of God's presence. When they anointed David as king, Samuel used oil on his head as a sign of God's presence. So we've got something that's very pure and very costly, something that speaks of God's presence, incense, only gives off its aroma when it's crushed or bruised. Incense is something that releases something beautiful when it's crushed and bru- so, we've got something that's very costly and pure, something that's a sign of God's presence, something that releases something beautiful when it's crushed and it's pure, and we've got some salt, a preservative, its presence that enables something to last forever or for a long time without spoil or fading. What was on God's mind with the grain offering? Jesus, who's pure, Bible says, Hebrews chapter 4, a high priest who's, uh, uh, hasn't been, who's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus, who's divine in the beginning, the gospel says, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, who when crushed, gave off a beautiful aroma. We looked at this a few weeks ago. They drove nails into his hands, and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. By his wounds, by his injuries, the apostle Peter would write, we ourselves are healed. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever or eternal quality, unchanging, unspoiling life. You see, the grain offering, it's all about Jesus. See, that could get me excited about the grain offering. Did you see, suddenly it comes alive, doesn't it? In a, in a new, I mean, I mean, grain and incense and oil and burning means nothing, but suddenly it means everything. And all the others are just the same. Remarkable book of Leviticus. We haven't got time for Psalm 22. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. 
Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel. There are 13 references in the New Testament um, that quote Old Testament references referencing the cross or the resurrection. Uh, uh, and uh, 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 nine of those references are in the Psalms and five of those references are in Psalm 22. Why? Because Psalm 22 brilliantly describes the agony and the method uh, in terms of the, the way, the detail of the way Jesus would die. Uh, and if you need a, if you need a sermon... The beginning of Psalm, Jesus quotes this from the cross. Quotes the first verse, invoking the whole psalm. The first part of Psalm 22 is the trouble. Second part of Psalm 22 is that you persevere through trouble by putting your trust in the God who holds all things. The third part of Psalm 22 is that trust through perseverance brings transformation of life. And then if you needed a fourth point that began with T, you could say that um, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, Psalm 22, becomes a template for the crucifixion of Christ and the way God works in the world. So there's a, a free sermon.com uh, if you need one of those. So, it, it, but it's all there. In, in all of these, and in Isaiah 53, which I guess is the most well-known one, which uh, perhaps we uh, uh, would have thought about uh, with my original question, where would we find Jesus in the Old Testament? But he's everywhere. I, I want to ask you this, and this is the important question. We've got like three minutes to go, but this is the deal. Do you see it everywhere? The cross, I mean. If you don't see it everywhere, you haven't grasped what God's doing in his world. You see, there was never a moment when God looks at this world, at your life and mine, and does not see it in the light of, in the shadow of the cross. You see, every time you sin, do you see the cross? Because that's what sin does. If we don't see the cross when we sin, we'll think that sin has no consequences, that sin doesn't really matter, that sin is just something that old religious people get uptight about these days. But if every time you sin, you see the cross, it changes everything. If every time you make a choice, you see the cross, it changes your choice because I'll choose the easy way. I'll choose the way of self. I'll choose the way that pleases me. So every time we travel a difficult road, do we see the cross? Otherwise, we'll think there is no hope. Every time you think you're not much worth, the shadow of the cross needs to fall, don't you think? Every time you think my life has no meaning, no purpose, no value, every time you think I'm on my own, nobody cares, nobody's for me, the shadow of the cross. Or every time you think you're self-made, I did this by myself, look at what I've achieved, look how in control of my life I am. You need to look at the cross. And every time you stare death in the face, if you don't see the cross, you'll never understand what's going on. You see, the cross says it's not what you can do, but it's what has been done. Think of a situation in your life right now that's it, you've got it, the first one that came into your mind. What difference 
does the cross make to that situation that immediately came into your mind? Let's be quiet. Let's be still. Father, thank you for the brilliance of your word. Thank you for the marvel of your story. Thank you for the wonder of seeing you at work, drawing our hearts, our minds, and our understanding to the cross. Thank you for the way down through the ages. We've seen the cross in all places and for all times. Help us, help me to see the cross wherever I need to see it today. Whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm enjoying, whatever I'm struggling with, whatever's bringing me pleasure or whatever's causing me pain, Whatever's filling me with belief or undermining me with doubt, my life only makes sense if I see it in the light of the cross. As we share this communion meal in these moments, help us to see more clearly. Let's prepare our hearts as we sing.